Welcome to Pop Culture Double Date. We have kind of been on a little bit of a hiatus for the last couple of months, mainly because it's been really hard for all of us to go to a movie theatre and watch a film. And also, you know, there hasn't really been that much that we as a group have been able to um, get consensus on in terms of, like, something that we would all kind of like to watch. So, as a result... This evening, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Um, I'm joined tonight by the usual crew, so Gerald, Anager, and Maggie. Um, and we also have a special guest, um, Gerald and Anager's daughter, Nikita, um, who will probably say hello at some point as well. So say hello, everyone. Hi. <laughs> hello. Howdy. Um, yeah, so anyway, so tonight we are going to do something different. We're basically going to... A while ago we did a show-and-tell episode, and we're just going to do a follow-up to that show-and-tell show episode. So instead of talking about a movie that we've all seen, um, I think we've all got out and seen stuff individually, be it sort of TV stuff or movie stuff, over the last sort of COVID period. And I think we're all, like... There's some stuff that we all actually have found quite enjoyable that we would like to share. So I think tonight we're all just going to go around the table and do a little bit of a show and tell and put forward some of the shows and movies that we've watched in the last few months during COVID that we think are great and that everyone listening should give those films and TV series a go. Um, there may be spoilers, but we're not going to do a full sort of in-depth, like rip a film apart thing tonight so um yeah like i think we're mainly going to talk about why we love them so much and why you should go and watch it so um let's get started shall we so why don't we start with who wants to go first jerry <laughs> i'm gonna throw you in what what are you putting what do you what do you bring to the show and tell table today what i'm offering for the delectation everyone is the latest uh, item in the Amazon Prime slate, i.e. Borat's subsequent movie film delivery of prodigious bribe to American regime for make-benefit once glorious nation of Kazakhstan. Okay. Uh, the, sequel, the sequel to 2006's Borat Cultural Learnings of America for make-benefit glorious nation of Kazakhstan. Um, now, this is a movie that has attracted a, de a degree of uh, controversy, that has attracted a lot of comment, uh, principally because of its climax involving one Rudolph Giuliani. But setting that aside um, and bearing in mind that we are on the cusp of the end of the Trump era, this movie strikes me as something of an appropriate coda to the entire um, Trump experiment that the United States uh, embarked upon uh, four years ago. And... So it is, I should say at the outset, not as shocking, not as surprising, and not as fresh as the first Borat film, but it nonetheless is very, very funny in parts. There are moments of impeccable comic timing and genius uh, littered throughout this film. Uh, but fundamentally, the movie does give off a sense of profound sadness, 
Um, now, the plot of the film is that uh, Borat, who was imprisoned and sentenced to hard labour following yeah. the uh, release of the last movie because he brought disgrace to the glorious nation of Kazakhstan, has been given a chance to redeem himself by offering a gift to Donald Trump, namely um, a, uh, a an ape uh, who is also Kazakhstan's leading porn star. He is meant to be brought to Donald Trump as a, as, as tribute. Um, instead, uh, when Borat arrives in America, um, this ape has been killed and um, he finds that the person sitting in the crate where the ape was supposed to have been is his daughter Tuta. And we follow as Borat attempts to doll Tuta up so that he can offer her as tribute to Mike Pence. Um, that's the basic premise of the film. And along the way, uh, Borat has to contend with the fact that he's now extremely recognisable, that everywhere he goes, people say, Borat, and very nice. Um, and so his daughter Tuta becomes the main vehicle for much of the comedy in the film, whereas Sasha Baron Cohen plays Borat mostly in disguise throughout the running length of the film. Why I say this movie gives off a sense of sadness is that you do get the sense throughout the film that in the Trump era, um, reality has kind of overrun the hijinks of, of, of Borat and that in a way the Trump presidency is itself a kind of giant Borat skit that Borat himself can no longer satirize quite as viciously because how do you satirize a reality that's so absurd that it's kind of immune to satire? Um, now, which is not to say that the movie doesn't hit comic high notes. It certainly does. But you can certainly see the movie striving harder for its laughs and for, um, for outrage than its prequel. So um, there are scenes involving um, a women's crisis health clinic, and a debutante ball, which rank with the best of Sasha Baron Cohen's work, um, and there is of course the the um, the climax involving Rudy Giuliani that is more sort of creepy and depressing than it is funny, um, and it reveals nothing new about the Trump regime. We already knew that the Trump regime was. Um, a cabal of old white men who were very entitled and uh, are more likely than not sexual predators. Um, and, like, the movie confirms that, but in confirming it, does nothing to, to tear the mask, to rip the mask off um, the otherwise gleaming surfaces of America, quite simply because, you know, the horrors of the Trump era are not hidden behind a facade of politeness or civility. They're there for everyone to see, which is why the comedy is more desperate, I think, in this film. It's, it's harder-edged, more desperate, and there's a, there's a real tone of rage and sadness um, in this movie that, that wasn't there in the first one. The first one was just skewering America during the Bush era for its complete absurdity. This movie... Feels like feels more like a howl of pain at what America has become, uh, 
and what America is so obviously now. So, look, it's plenty of fun. It's very, very short. It's only got, I think, an 82-minute runtime. Um, so it is a diverting way to um, spend an hour and a half. And as I said before, it's a nice way to, to round out and draw a line under the, the Trump era. But um, it certainly doesn't hit the, the highs of the first film. You're not going to see anything like the infamous naked wrestling scene involving Borat and his producer, Azamat Bogatov, in the first movie, which, to be frank, is probably not a bad thing. Mm. So I'll just add something to that because I actually watched this film as well. Mags did not want to watch this film, but I I watched it. Look, I, I probably didn't really get as much of this political sense that Jerry has, right? I, I think if I take the politics out of this film, it, it's very hard to take the politics out of this film, but if you take the politics out of this film, um, I think this film is actually a better story than the original Borat. I think the original Borat was like a series of, like almost like skits, right, involving sort of real-life deception, while this film feels much more like a film <laughs> which kind of tells a story, and on some level, the story of him and his daughter is actually, it's it's somewhat engaging, right? Like, it's it's not yeah. it's not a bad, it's not a bad story for a film. So, yeah, like, I, I didn't mind this film. I, I think both sides, are, look, to be honest, I think wherever you sit on the political spectrum, you probably can enjoy this film, and, um, <laughs> I, I I do find that the Rudy Giuliani scene is probably not as bad as like some people have kind of made it out to be, right? Like it is edited in a way that you can tell that there are shenanigans going on there, right? But it is a funny scene, right? So um, yeah, I, I think I think it's a it's definitely a fun film to pass the time. Anyway, sorry Jerry, sorry for cutting you off. Yeah, no, not at all, not at all. So. You know, I think I think you're absolutely right. The the story of Borat and Tutar gives the film a, a bit more heart than the last one did. Even though this one is arguably not as inventive in its comedy, at least it had it had that heart, which I think gives it um, which gives it a, a, a more coherent framework to hang all the skits off. Um, and I've got to say, uh, Maria Bakalova, who plays Tutar, is amazing in this movie. She keeps up with Sasha Baron Cohen beat for beat at every point of the film. Um, it is a remarkable performance by someone who was uh, previously unknown, and um, and it is really a star-making turn. Mm. Mm. Okay, cool. So that's a ringing endorsement for Borat from Jerry. Is that right? Uh, it's an endorsement. I'm an not, endorsement. I'm not, gonna, I'm not sure it's a it's a ringing endorsement, but it's certainly an endorsement. It's it's worth watching. If I need to see, if I need to see how Sasha Baron Cohen uh, can pull this character off the shelf and give it one more run. Mm. And it's free on Amazon Prime. Well, free in inverted commas if you've got Amazon Prime. So, yeah, I thought it, I thought it was sort of a fine use of eighty minutes as well. So yes, okay. <laughs> Let's move on to the next person for show and tell. Who who wants to do show and tell, tell next? Daddy, I, I can go. Yeah, I can go next. Yay! <laughs> um, <laughs> So I'm going to talk about Little Women. So this is the 2019 Greta Gerwig film um, and is an interpretation of a children's classic by Louisa May Alcott. Um, So my introduction to this story was way back in the 90s when Gillian Armstrong uh, made a version in 1994 starring Winona Ryder as Jo. 
after I saw that movie, I then read the book, and it um, was one of the core kind of influential stories of my childhood. So it's a, a story that's close to my heart um, and is very meaningful. Uh, so it follows the story of the March family, um, a family of four sisters living in Massachusetts during the American Civil War, um, and it's a, a bit of a coming-of-age story of these uh, young girls as they mature into young women. So with the Get Greta Gertwig version, unlike the book and the Julian Armstrong rendition, um, she starts the story in the middle of um, in the middle of the story when Jo March is a young woman. She's in New York City trying to find her way as a writer uh, and to navigate her her life as a woman of independent means. She's a governess of two young girls in a boarding house. Uh, where she also meets a German professor who is a recent migrant to the United States. And there she learns about her sister Beth, her younger sister, one of her younger sisters, sorry, um, deteriorating health. She then returns home to where her uh, family still lives and uh, while looking after Beth, starts writing stories about their life as a way of um, nursing Beth. And it's through that process that we begin to learn in glimpses um, and in earnest the stories that led each of the sisters to where they are now as young women. So I actually really loved um, Greta Gertwig's rendition. I thought it was beautifully told, um, still wholesome, and I loved the little stories of each of um, the young women. She managed to capture the core values that really imbued the book. Um, so for me, those were... Um, the essential humanity that connects it connects every one of us and this idea that there is a goodness in all people if you look hard enough um, and try hard enough to find that commonality. Um, at the same time, she also managed to balance, in my mind anyway, a recognition that there was more complexity in reality in the society that the March um, sisters were living through um, compared to the ideal that they had been brought up to believe in. Um, she also updates the dialogue in the story a little bit by adding her own feminist twist, which I think with, for some people may have been a little bit, um, a little bit, uh, uh, of an embellishment to this, to, um, Lewis May Alcott's story. So she puts in the dialogue, for example, a bit of social commentary about women's struggles, um, as, uh, to be recognised as people, uh, worthy in their own right as having, you know, legitimate careers and being independent. Um, but I, I didn't mind that at all. Um, I thought the movie was really well cast. The settings, the costumes, the music, the transformation of place and time were all beautiful. Um, I really enjoyed watching Suarez Ronan as um, Jo March. I thought she captured the character really well. Um, and uh, Timothy, Timothy Chalamet as Laurie Lawrence, the rich boy next door, it's hard to replace Christian Bale, who was in the 1994 version, as the same character, um, but I thought Timothy Chalamet did it did a pretty good job. So all in all, I really really enjoyed it. And I would recommend it. Mm. Okay, so where can people? Where did you watch Little Women, Mags? Uh, I feel like we're giving a plug to Amazon Prime. Well, that's where I watched it. <laughs> okay, don't worry, because both of my show and tell ones are Netflix, so we're, we're, we're platform agnostic here. So you watched Little Women on Amazon Prime. 
Um, and we're in Australia, so I don't know if you're around the world if Little Women is on Amazon Prime. So, so you didn't mind it, right? And okay, so full disclosure, I, this was a film. So it's really interesting because I think this show and tell stuff that we've all kind of brought up. This is all stuff that um, I don't think any of us have seen. Active. Well, I I didn't watch Little Women. This was one of these things that Mags watched on her own recognizance and I wasn't at home when this was happening. Um, um, so yeah, like it's, it's interesting. And I think the shows that I'm going to talk about are stuff that Mags has no interest in either. Right. So I think it's interesting that we're doing this tonight. It's probably a good thing that we get to talk about stuff that we're individually passionate about that, um, our other halves might not necessarily be passionate about. Um, Daz, can I just add a, add a, a second to, what Mags had to say about Little Women, um, yeah. I thought it was a, a a really beautifully made little movie. When I first saw it in the cinema, um, it, it felt a bit sort of slow moving, stately, and perhaps a little trifling, but it did linger in the memory for me. Um, and in so doing, uh, the movie had you know sort of see has in retrospect grown in um, profundity and meaning. And it's an incredible uh, cast that of um, talents that actors actors appoint, uh, assembled for the purpose of this movie, um, and Saoirse Ronan was nominated for Best Actress um, yet again at the Academy Awards. I mean, she's had about four or five of these nominations. She is um, a truly formidable uh, talent, and her her pairing with Greta Gerwig um, after Lady Bird, uh, this this could be an absolutely incredible artistic partnership ranking up there with you know De Niro Scorsese so I, I thought I thought it was a very very fine film um, and um, even though I didn't understand at the end why Laurie decided to uh, marry Amy March um, that plot hole aside I thought it was a, a really lovely film <laughs> I can I can pinpoint the exact moment the film increased in profundity and meaning for Gerald it was when we both walked out of the cinema and Gerald said that was good. It wasn't really about anything, was it? And I said, it was about the lives of women, Gerald. Does that mean it <laughs> <laughs> meant the film grew in profundity and meaning? <laughs> Independ- independently of that, independently of that, it has genuinely lingered in the memory um, far more than like a lot of the other Best Picture nominees of last year. So for my money, um, it, it, it is sort of like the second or third best film of last year. Um, and is you know I, I haven't seen the uh, Gillian Armstrong version of the of this story, um, but I I, I I I can say that it, it is a movie that really sort of leaves an imprint if you if you allow it to. Okay, so can I can I ask the people who have watched this film one thing because I have I'm probably the only one who, I am the only one here who hasn't seen this film and. I actively avoided this film because I really dislike Greta Gerwig's films. I, I've seen... Sorry, that's not true. I've seen one of her films that I really hated and subsequently I've avoided her films, right? <laughs> so I really disliked Francis, Francis Ha. I thought it was incredibly pretentious and I thought it was very self-indulgent. And anyway, for someone who <laughs> is not into that sort of ultra-arthouse-y sort of like that sort of pretentious New York style... Is this a film that is like that, or is this actually a film that is actually filmed in a sort of classical way that pretty much every, anyone can enjoy? 
I'm it does. It's definitely, it's definitely the latter. It's it's yeah. so not Francis Ha. I mean, I enjoyed Francis Ha, but it isn't it isn't a sort of black and white pseudo wannabe Woody Allen movie. Um, this is this is very classically composed, very classically shot. Uh, the only the only real sort of innovation introduced in the film, uh, as distinct from say the book, is that it. Um, it, it tells a lot of the story in the form of flashback, as distinct from in a linear fashion. Um, but that aside, it is it is very very classically composed, and um, anyone who dislikes Woody Allen or Noah Baumbach could readily have a good time watching this movie. Mm. Okay, Mags. So it seems like Gerald and Andrew are recommending this. Mags, you're definitely recommending this, right? This you you found resonance with this film. I think you should watch it tonight, Darren. Okay. <laughs> okay, so that's that's the next one. Okay, I'm going to go next, um, and then we'll go to Anager, and if we have time, I'm going to go twice, because I... Um, I want to hear the, the last one. I want to hear your horror one. Yeah, okay. I'll go my frivolous one first. So I am going to, like... Okay, <laughs> So we're going from Little Women to I am going to talk about a TV series that I really enjoyed um, earlier in lockdown, which was Cobra Kai. So Cobra Kai is not as deep as Little Women. It is kind of the TV sequel to the Karate Kid movies. Um, so we all remember, well, not all of us, but when I was a kid, I remember watching the Karate Kid movies, part one, part two, and part three. And I remember thinking they were awesome because, like, there were people doing karate and there was, like, the whole sort of, you know, Daniel and Mr. Miyagi. And to be honest, the Karate Kid is a little bit of a cultural touchstone. Like, after all these years, for a film that, films that, in hindsight, were probably not amazing, amazing films, but they've kind of, like, formed a cultural touchstone, right? Like, there's memes like Sweet the Leg and, like, you know, No Mercy and, like, the sort of the crane kick thing at the end of the Karate Kid. Like, you know, Daniel Sun, like, uh, Wax On, Wax Off, all this type of stuff, right? It all comes from the Karate Kid. So... Um, it is a bit of a cultural touchstone. So, you know, a few years ago on YouTube, um, YouTube Red, YouTube Premium, kind of YouTube Red, I think it was, it started its life as, they commissioned um, Cobra Kai, which is basically a sequel to the Karate Kid films, and it's set kind of in the present day, um, and it follows... Um, Johnny Lawrence. So Johnny Lawrence was the bad guy in the original, bad guy in inverted commas, in the original Karate Kid. He was like the bully to Daniel, right? So Daniel, the original Karate Kid was a film about a kid who got bullied and then he learnt karate and at the end there was a tournament and the kid is a, through like learning to find balance, learning to fight through karate, that sort of thing, he's able to triumph in the tournament against his bully. And um, yeah, that's kind of the point of this film, right? Like, he, he kind of learns to fight, but he also learns to find some, some sort of inner balance as well. This this sequel, Cobra Kai, is actually picks up, um, you know, years after all the stuff that happened when they were kids. And Johnny Lawrence, who was the bully to Daniel, um, basically, he is, at the start of this series, he is... Um, a bit of a, he's like a handyman, he kind of does sort of odd jobs here and there, he, he kind of like drinks a lot, his life is not really a good place, right, he has a son that he doesn't really connect with, you know, he's not married, like, you know, all this type of stuff, he's kind of just like all over the place a little bit, right, and so, um, I mean, 
this series is basically, uh, it's kind of about him and Daniel, and Daniel has kind of become a, he's, he's a car salesman, right? Which is kind of an odd choice, like creatively, I guess, to bring your hero into, like as in this hero from this film, um, you know, in the 80s, and now, like, he's grown up and he's got his family, but he's kind of like, he owns a car yard and, well, he owns quite a big car, car yard and he's kind of like a car salesman, right? So he's seen as kind of a successful business person, but he's still kind of trading on the fame that he earned when he won the karate championship when he was a kid, right? So Cobra Kai is basically about how Johnny, uh, Johnny's journey to kind of find himself and the people around him, Johnny, Johnny's neighbor is a kid called Miguel Diaz and basically the first season of Cobra Kai is basically a remix of the original Karate Kid film um, and instead of Daniel tra- training with Mr. Miyagi it's Miguel Diaz training with Johnny Lawrence so instead of have and Johnny is even though he is kind of going on a sort of journey of sort of self-discovery a little bit right he he basically reinstates his old dojo, Cobra Kai. And there's a big difference between Cobra Kai and the the Mr. Miyagi style of karate because Cobra Kai is like, their motto is strike first, strike hard, no mercy, right? So there's this very sort of aggressive, you know, you, you have to take things for yourself. You have to sort of, but linked in all of this, there is like a strong sense of discipline and sort of um, hard work and sort of like just fighting through it sort of thing, right? So anyway, like Cobra Kai is like as a series, it's basically like a a remix of the original Karate Kid series, right? Now, the reason why I think this is, I love this series so much is because this, in my mind, this series is nostalgia done well. I think over the last few years, we have seen so many different um, sort of series sort of being rebooted or sort of redone with sequels or whatever it is, right? And they've basically tried to mine the gold mine of your nostalgia. And sometimes, and to be honest, most of the time, it's pretty poorly done. And it's quite a blatant sort of cash grab, essentially, right? So I I think about... um, (laughs) Look, to be honest, the thing that pops into my mind the most is the latest Star Wars films. Um... Like, I think that the latest Star Wars films, like, they didn't really respect the original source material particularly well, and there are, in particular, certain characters that really got the bum end of the stick in the, in this, in the reboot. Like, certain previously loved characters. Now, I think what Cobra Kai does really well is that this is a series that, it does not feel like a blatant cash grab. It, there's plenty of nostalgia, but it feels like the creators of this genuinely love the Karate Kid and all of the characters from the original Karate Kid, all of the story, the lore of whatever lore there was of the, from the original Karate Kid films is treated with respect, right? None of the returning characters are like horrible pieces, like horrible people or anything like that. These, everyone is treated with a modicum of respect and it's kind of like their character journeys kind of make sense. Right, so you would think that a character like Johnny, who was pretty too, like one-dimensional in the original Karate Kid, they've re- brought him back, and his character is like interestingly fleshed out. Right, they talk about like you know 
what he's kind of been through, right? He, they talk about, well, why did he become a bully in the first place, right? Like, wh- what is it that drove someone like Johnny Lawrence to bully Daniel? And actually, what was also really cool about this series is that they describe the events of the original Karate Kid through the eyes of Johnny Lawrence, right? Because the original Karate Kid, it's a film that's through the eyes of Daniel. But Cobra Kai, there's a scene where basically Johnny talks about the original Karate Kid and how much he hated Daniel. Uh, Daniel, because Johnny felt like Daniel was making his life miserable. And so it's actually quite... Like, it's really interesting, right? It's like life from the other point of view... It's, um, and the other side isn't necessarily demonized, right? And by the same token, the character of Daniel, even though it's kind of weird that he's become a car salesman, he's not demonized either. It's not like he's become like this Luke Skywalker character, which is just like lost the will to live, essentially, right? Like Daniel is still essentially Daniel. It's just that, you know, like, you know, he has to have a life, right? He has to make money and, you know, he's got a family that he has to feed and all this type of stuff. So, like, this is... It's all, like, these characters are really well done, really well developed. It's nostalgia done well. Um, I, I would also like to say that I think that the, char- the new characters that they bring to um, Cobra Kai are really well done, right? So, in particular, Miguel Diaz, who is kind of the new karate well when I say new karate he's like Johnny Lawrence's Cobra Kai protege right so Miguel Diaz is such an engaging character right he's the guy who plays Miguel he has this sort of really disarming earnestness about him and it's just like I just love watching Miguel right I think he's like he's like you see his sort of character journey and basically like he starts off as a kid who's kind of getting bullied right but then he learns karate and he learns to kind of like not just stand up to himself but realizing that he he also has sort of some sort of power right so it kind of is really interesting because it's kind of this sort of story where like the bullied kid gets some like you know the, the bully kid learns how to defend himself but in the process kind of becomes a little bit of a bully himself because Cobra Kai is that sort of aggressive style of karate right anyway look this is there's a lot to talk about with this I'm not going to get through kind of all of it in short I think it's nostalgia done really well I think the characters are like super super engaging I think it's this is a series also you know everyone here knows that I love like pieces of work that are thematically consistent and this series is basically about education and you know how someone like how you educate someone how you bring somebody up like people get molded by their sort of backgrounds and their education and their mentors and all this type of stuff right and this is this show is fundamentally about how like no one is a faceless bully right like we have these sort of like cardboard cutout villains that are sort of faceless bullies but the reality is that everyone is kind of an individual and their stories all have have some sort of pathos and resonance even if they are the bully because even in becoming the bully they must have taken that journey from somewhere and invariably the bully's journey is 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 what a journey that started off with them getting bullied in the first place and um it kind of is also a show so it's about that issue but also it's a show about how there is also always 
the ability to, for one to kind of adjust their lives and um, find some sort of redemption in their lives, right? So it, I think thematically, this show is super consistent throughout about that sort of thing. So I think it's really good. Um, the only caveat I would put to this show is that season one is definitely better than season two. Season two kind of becomes more of a like schoolyard soap opera sort of thing. There are still quite good episodes in season two. It's not a bad show, but the soap opera element definitely gets ratcheted up in season two, right? Like, there's a lot of drama for drama's sake. There's a lot of disagreements that kind of are not... You kind of scratch your head about, well, why are they really disagreeing? Is it, you know, why is this happening? But it's kind of just there because they need to continue building drama and extending the show, right? But season one is really, really good. Season two is also worth watching, but in my mind, not as good. And season three is coming to Netflix because, so I watch this mainly because this used to be on YouTube exclusively, but Netflix bought the show and they're making season three. So I'm really glad they did that. Um, yeah, I, I, I really like this show. This real, show really resonated with me. It's not a super complex show. It's quite a simple show to watch, but it was very enjoyable. Um, yeah, what else is there to say? Oh, the only other thing I would like to say about Cobra Kai is that you kind of go, have to go in and you need to realize that, like, the way they've shot this is kind of... It feels a little bit like 80s when it comes to, like, fighting and the fight scenes and that sort of thing, right? Like, it is kind of goofy. Some of their fighting and their fight training is a little bit goofy. Um, but you kind of, like, just suspend disbelief a little bit and just believe that in a few weeks you can become a badass karate expert. Um, anyway, so that that was that's my first show and tell, Cobra Kai. Um, I really enjoyed it. I don't know if you guys, any of you guys, have seen it or have any comments. No, on it. it sounds like it's got a lot of heart. So I can, yeah, I can see myself. But, but oh, you said Netflix? Oh, good. Yeah, it's on there Netflix. It's on Netflix. It's, it's on Netflix. Giving it a go. Sounds great. Yeah. Okay, so Anija. Oh, okay. All right. So I'm also talking about a Netflix show. It's called The Queen's Gambit. It is one limited season, um, and Gerald and I binged it over a couple of days. It follows the story of Beth, who is orphaned at the age of eight when her mother, who suffers from mental illness, um, basically commits suicide um, trying to take Beth's life along with her own in a car crash. Um but Beth survives, her mother dies, and she ends up in an orphanage. And in this orphanage, she meets uh, somebody in the basement of the orphanage who is a chess player and plays chess pretty much with himself, and she starts to play with him. Uh, Beth's mother is a PhD in mathematics and very smart, and um, turns out that Beth is incredibly gifted and is very easily able to navigate the world of chess because it is confined to a number of permutations within you know, 64 squares. Um, which makes her feel safe and makes her feel in control and she pretty much kind of is a legend at it from the word go. Um, and the, the series basically follows her um, as she leaves the orphanage, she gets um, adopted out and she enters a bunch of chess tournaments and she continues, oh, there's Kiki, she's weighing in, um, and she continues to climb the chess 
ladder, um, winning tournament after tournament, um, becoming sort of um, higher and higher up, becoming like the US champion, and ultimately going on to play in the world championships to try to beat, um, you know, the best of the best, who is a Russian by the name of Borgov. So you would, so it is also very slow moving, and you would think that what made this uh, so gripping is the payoff after payoff that you think you're going to get as best plays one tournament after another in a completely male-dominated world and pretty much wins all the time. And you would think that it's the, the winning that would kind of be the payoff. But surprisingly, the winning is not that exciting, A, because the show sets her up to win kind of all the time. We kind of know there's not really that much suspense. You know she's going to win these matches. So that's not really where the payoff comes. Also, the chess matches themselves are not that exciting. Like we, <laughs> we, learn, <laughs> we learn a lot about chess and how the game is played and we learn all these terms and stuff, and that's fun just for your own knowledge, you know. Um, but... The game is not that exciting, and so watching her win these games is not that exciting. I think what's compelling about this is that it is actually the journey, the hero's journey. So Beth learns from a very young age to be, like, to be kind of... There's a lot of trauma, right? Her mother has suffered with mental illness. Her mother's made several suicide attempts while, you know, raising Beth, which Beth is aware of, and... Beth has that memory of her mother pretty much intentionally trying to take out her own life and Beth's life as well. Um, you know, her mother pretty much was um, on her last day of her mother's life. Beth remembers her mother driving to the house of Beth's biological father and trying to beg for help and the father pretty much turning her down. And so Beth's life has kind of been about people not showing up for her, people not being there for her, not caring for her, not loving her and being alone. Um, and when she's put in this orphanage, the orphanage is fine. It's not a it's not a horrible place by any means, but she's alone. And when she finally gets adopted out, you think, okay, maybe there's some scope for her to find family. But she's pretty much told by the father, the adopted father, I didn't want you. The my wife wanted you, and the wife tells her, yeah, you were his idea. So even when she's adopted out, she's not she's not immediately made to feel welcome in this home and she does eventually develop a great friendship with the adopted mother um and eventually the adopted mother passes away too so there's a lot of loss in her life and a lot of loneliness and beth at a very young age becomes a drug addict because at the orphanage they um had this practice of giving the children tranquilizers to keep everyone calm so she gets addicted to these tranquilizers quite young and she gets it in her head that the only reason she's so good at chess is because she's she's doped up and that she can't play as well when she's not doped up. So she sort of forms that belief and it's almost a bit of an anxiety um, and so she, you know, she becomes quite the drug addict. So she's battling through the challenges of being alone and feeling alone in the world and also being addicted to drugs and dealing with all this trauma as she, you know, um, moves up in the chess world. And we watch how these traumas and these addictions and these battles threaten to take 
that possible life and success away from her as they um, play, a, you know, a, a pretty destructive role in her life. Um, and that's quite gripping, to be honest, to watch her, you know, manage all of these things. And ultimately, it is the journey of her coming to realize several things. Um, one thing being that she's not alone. She actually has made friends and she has made connections throughout her life. And those people show up for her. And not only do they show up for her, but she starts to develop the vulnerability required to let them in and let them help her. Um, and so that's quite moving. She also learns that she isn't dependent on those drugs, that she isn't going to become mentally ill like her mother, that she can kind of overcome that and still kind of survive in the world without being numbed all the time. So that's also like quite like it's very compelling to watch. Um, and she learns to kind of back herself, um, which, you know, she's always had a strong belief in her ability, but that belief is undermined by these ideas like I can only I can only do it when I'm doped up. I can only do it on drugs, you know, like is it really a belief in yourself if you think you can only do it while you're under the influence, right? So she has to kind of like forge a strong belief in herself without without those things supporting her up. Um, why is the show called Queen's Gambit? Well, we learn that there are a lot of chess moves and a lot of chess openings. And the opening, the way you open the chess game actually sets the whole game up and it kind of directs the game and the different openings have different names and I think one of them is the Queen's Gambit um, and in the end um, when she finally comes up against the only player in the world that she actually doesn't think she can beat um, she has to decide she's she is she she um, draws the color white which means that she makes the first move so she decides how to open and the queen's gambit is a type of opening that she's really good at but it's kind of his strength as well and one of the things she learns along the way is like don't play um, like don't play something just because it's your opponent's weakness. Don't stay away from something just because it's your opponent's strength. Play to your own strength, even if it's your opponent's strength as well, because that's backing yourself, right? Because like, you can win if it's your own strength, even if it's their strength too. Like that's the best way to go. And so that's the, the way she plays at the end. I won't say, you know, what happens at the end, um, but I think that, you know, that idea of playing to your own strength is another sort of, Things she learns that it's okay to back herself fully um, all the way. So that's actually what's compelling about it. It's definitely the hero's journey. It's definitely, well, the, the journey, the, it's definitely what she learns along the way. And um, it's, I think, very, it's kind of an odd kind of superhero movie in that she is kind of invincible. She's like a superhero. She's very high powered in the sense that she really never loses and you never really expect her to lose. And yet there's all this vulnerability and challenge in other ways. Like not from the, not from winning or losing the game, but in other aspects of her life that we watch her overcome, um, and that's I think what made it so gripping. And that was why we binged it in two days and couldn't really stop, even though the payoffs of the chess game wins weren't that strong. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay. I'm I'm definitely interested. The way you've framed it. It always sounds like an anime, right? Like a, like a real life anime. Whereas, because you know, like I don't know if you watch loads of anime, but 
anime, a lot of it is like, every episode is like a different opponent, right? You're constantly fighting stronger opponents in anime, right? So, like, it feels yeah. like, the way you describe it kind of feels like that. It's like that. It is like that. <laughs> okay, so, I don't know. Okay, well, I'm do- time, the biggest opponent was inside yourself. <laughs> Yeah, I should also say that the show is just gorgeous on the screen. It's set in the 50s and 60s. The production design and the costuming on the show are absolutely impeccable. It's a, it's a genuine feast for the eyes. Um, and so even though uh, the, the description of it as a show about chess might not set the heart of Flutter, um, it is just um, beautifully made and incredibly well acted in the central performance by Anya Taylor-Joy. So um, I too was, well, I mean, I too was part of this two-day binge. Um, it was very, very compelling. Okay. So so I think Mags and I might have to check it out. We've, we've definitely seen it on our Netflix Rolodex. Um, so, yeah, we, we'll probably check it out. It's a ringing endorsement from Anager and Gerald. So, yeah. Okay, so I think... (laughs) Yeah, so I'm going to have another crack because um, I guess the other thing that I watched that I quite enjoyed and is actually very different, so I kind of wanted to talk about it, is The Haunting of Bly Manor, which is also on Netflix and was also relatively recently released. Um, It's quite a short show it's a, it's a tv it's like a tv series like i don't know what to call these things anymore it's just a tv series on netflix you know eight to ten episodes that sort of thing right um so it's billed as a horror film right like it's billed as well not a horror film uh, but a horror tv series and look the reality is that yes there are horror elements to this show and to be honest i i found myself it, i found it kind of odd that I was even watching this show in the first place because I kind of have a love-hate relationship with horror like kind of I get scared really easily of stuff but I kind of at the same time am really sort of attracted to sort of that's like horror like I, I don't know what it is right it's kind of like I'm horrified but at the same time I kind of can't stop looking away so I watch this by myself because Mags is not into horror at all, right? And I tried desperately to convince Mags to watch this after I finished watching this because, in my mind, this is not really a horror TV series. It has horror elements, it has ghosts, it has, like, creepy small children, you know, like, it's in a house, it's in a haunted house. Yes, so there are all these horror elements. But really, this show is... It's just... It's a very human show. It's kind of about the characters, right? Like, this is not a... This is not one of these, like, jump horror things or, like, visceral gore horror horror things, right? It's not like a slasher film or um, it's not like sort of Japanese horror where it's like you have this disgusting monster and that's kind of the key to it, right? I mean, there is a weird monster in this but like it's not really the key to this right like this this is this thing is not about the jump scares the jump scares are kind of like there 
but not really why you're watching The Haunting of Bly Manor. There are plenty of other horror film things you can watch for jump scares, crazy monsters, slasher action, gore, blood, all of that thing. This is... This is, and look, the show itself tells you that this is a love story, not a ghost story. And that is, in my mind, on watching it through, I've seen it one and a half times, uh, I watched it once and then I kind of re-watched the first few episodes again, um, because the way the show works, it kind of makes you want to take that journey back and see what you missed, kind of, on the first way through. Um, but yeah, this is absolutely a story that is principally really about human relationships and the ghost story, the ghost story is almost like, it's, it's kind of like, it's like a, the ghost component is almost like, it's like the setting, right? Like it's not, it is central to the story, but not really. Like it's kind of the setting, right? Like, the horrible ghost monster is kind of like, it's like the tsunami, or the natural disaster that comes comes the way through. And what is really interesting is, well, how do people kind of cope through that sort of natural disaster sort of thing? I, I'm not sure that's a really good explanation. It's kind of weird explanation for this thing, but yeah, that's kind of how I feel about this, right? So this... This TV series is basically about a au pair, like a nanny called um, Danny. She um, she gets a job. She's an American who gets a job in. Uh, she find she wants to stay in the UK, and she gets a job at Bly Manor, looking after these two kids whose parents have recently passed away. And at this manor, there's the nanny, who's Danny, who's the main character. The two kids, Miles and Flora, who you're um, like stereotypical creepy children in a haunted house. They're not really, right? Flora is actually genuinely incredibly cute and endearing. So, and Miles is super creepy. So, but anyway, like, so they're the two sort of weird children that are in the house. And then there's like the gardener, who's this, uh, who's uh, a lady. And there is the housekeeper, who's a lady and the cook, who's a, a guy, right? And they, they all kind of interact, right? And basically every episode kind of follows the story of one of these... Well, it follows the larger story of what is going on in Blind Manor and the haunting stuff that's kind of going on through Blind Manor, but every episode kind of follows the individual journeys of the different characters and how they got there. So there's almost an element of, like, every episode is, like, shows the backstory of kind of one character, right? Now, for me... And I think a lot of other reviews that I've heard about this show, and I 100% agree with all of them, this show is incredibly slow to get started. The first four episodes in my mind are kind of slow. They kind of show the background of the various characters, and they kind of set up the whole horror element to it. But this show doesn't really take off until episode 5, 6, 7, and 8. Because episode 5 is a mind-bending episode. Genuine, like, it's... That is the episode where you're like, oh... So this is what I've been watching all this time. This episode five, once you see episode five, you have to basically last the first four episodes because it's very slow and very ponderous. But once you hit episode five, in my opinion, that is when everything clicks and you go, okay, now I need to find out more. Is it a twist? It is and it isn't, right? It is and it isn't. Like, like you kind of, like, 
get the feeling it it is. And it's not really, it's not twisty in the in the way of, oh my god, all it was a lie all along sort of twist, right? It's not like that, right? But it adds another layer to this tale, which is like in my mind incredibly clever, right? Yeah. Because like this this is, and I don't really want to give spoilers away, right? But this is a show that um, talks about memory, um, consciousness, and like death right like it is a show that at some point is like well what's it like to be a ghost it's pretty interesting it's different i've never really watched a horror film or a horror tv series where it's like what's it like being a ghost (laughs) right it's never from the ghost perspective it's always from living people who are running away but it weaves it in really really well and like even though i say that there is this whole element of what is it like to be a ghost at no point is it like it's it's actually about humans, right? Like even though like there are dead humans, it's actually still about humans. So it's it's really episode five is when it all comes together. Six, seven, eight, all of it kind of builds. It's kind of like it's super slow and then builds to this amazing crescendo, right? Um, there are two episodes. The last two episodes, the last. Third last episode, second, third last episode, and the second last episode actually, ironically, have the same cliffhanger. Literally, the same event is happening. It's the same cliffhanger, but it's done super, super well. The two episodes are from different sort of points of view, and you kind of, and this is a horror show where everything is explained. By the end of the show, everything is laid out on the table. There's no like, oh, this is, this is weird and inexplicable and just supernatural. All the supernatural elements are perfectly explained like rational as much as they can be they're so they're not supernatural by the end no no no. they are supernatural but why they're supernatural is explained right it's not like it's like it's not like there are just these ghosts that are walking around and no one understands why there's a ghost sort of thing right everything like the origins why things are happening in the way they are they all like you kind of the first four episodes are super disjointed because you kind of don't really know what's going on and then by the time you finish the the last episode you're like man all these pieces fit together and they fit together not just from a plot perspective but from an emotional and character perspective as well so at the end of it it's like all these pieces click together and this is why I immediately kind of started watching the first episode again because it's like oh, now that I see how all this fits together, like, now I can kind of, the first four episodes kind of make more sense to me now, right? Like, it's it's that sort of show. So, yeah, this is not, like, as I said, this is not a classic horror show. It is not a classic ghost story, but it is a really interesting story. And with supernatural elements, which I love, because it kind of makes it more interesting i guess and everything kind of fits together the acting is excellent the um script is very slow in the first four episodes as i said but ramps up really really well um and i think there's like a genuinely um powerful and engaging love story and story about human relationships at the like at the heart of this series which I, i think is really really nice so yes and it is it's it's gothic horror right so it's that sort of i i I don't know the exact edwardian i want to say maybe it's not edwardian i don't know anyway it's that sort of old school english english horror um but it's yeah i i think i think it's 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 really well done right the acting 
is really good. All the characters are really good. It made me... So, The Haunting of Bly Manor, to finish, is actually like... What Netflix has kind of done is that, and I didn't realize this, is that there are various haunting shows. Well, there's two haunting shows on Netflix. The first one was The Haunting of Hill House, and the second one is The Haunting of Blind Manor. And in much the same way, I think there was another show, American Horror Story. They sh- The actors kind of go between... It's the same actors between different seasons, but the setting and the story is kind of completely different. And I think that's kind of what they're trying to achieve with this haunting series of, um, like, horror, like, haunting series of horror TV series, where it's the same character, the same actors uh, portray very different roles um, in the various different series, right? So I think that's really cool and kind of interesting. Um, and I, like, I went back and I started watching Hill House. I, I, I know that this is probably an unpopular opinion on the internet, but I think Bly Manor is better than Hill House, but I think genuinely, generally the, the views I've seen, like people like Hill House more, but um, yeah, both shows are sort of not classic horror, but I strongly recommend watching The Haunting of Bly Manor. I think it is a super interesting show. It was completely not what I expected. It was a show that I put on initially as background, and then at Basically, when episode five hit, I could not stop watching it. So, yeah, I thought it was a very engaging show. I'm still tr- trying to convince Mags to watch it. Um, I don't know if I'll be successful in that. But to the wider world, I think it's great. You, everyone out there should at least give it a go. Well, at least give give it a go until episode five. And if after episode five you're still not sold, then fair enough. Gerald, you know what I'm going to ask you. Nope. Come on! Watch it with me. You can watch it. No, I can't watch it on my own. I'm too scared. <laughs> Damn it, come on, watch it. It sounds amazing. Yeah, well, not Why tonight. not? not okay, tonight. but later? Maybe, maybe later. Okay, tomorrow. Okay, not tomorrow. <laughs> this sounds like my conversation with Dad. This is exactly. I. You have no idea. Immediately after I watched this, I was like, "Max, you have to watch this with me." And she's like, "No, no, no. I don't do horror. I don't do horror." Like, I'm like, "It's not horror. It's not horror." So I'm obsessed with horror, but I can't watch any of it because it will scare me for months on end. So normally, I look up the plot summary on the internet, and that's enough to give me a really big scare. But I can survive that. But I really want to watch it, but I know it'll mean I won't sleep for months. Months and months on end, but I still really want to watch it. I just need Gerald to watch it with me. <laughs> well, look, I, I think, <laughs> but look, this this show, as I said, is not that sort of visceral horror, right? It's not like people's heads are exploding and like there's the monster that's like horrible and disgusting and that sort of thing, right? It's... That's not that's not that's not what's scary. It is more that sort of silent, creepy, insidious, like evil, like, yeah, spirit. Look, that, that, that stuff. Really but, but see, this is the thing, right? Like, once you hit that episode five, it really isn't about evil, insidious spirits. So it, it's it, there. There are spirits. There's definitely spirits. There's definitely supernatural stuff. But it's not about this hideous, insidious evil that cannot be conquered. It, it's not like that at all. It, it's actually much more. As I said, it's much more human than that. And I don't want to spoil it because it is like you know, it's better to watch this clean. It's definitely something you should watch clean. So, yeah. Okay. 
Is there anything? Are we? We're done, right? Is there any? Are there any shows? Any other shows you guys want to talk about? Good job bringing five TV shows out of the, and movies into the world. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, look, I mean, to our audience, if there's anything you guys like from this, you guys should watch it. Like, you know, it's COVID has been a pretty tough sort of time, and we are definitely struggling now <laughs> to find good stuff <laughs> to watch. Um, but yeah, like, I think Mags and I will probably give Queen's, Queen's Gambit a go, definitely. Um, well, actually, no, we'll definitely give Queen's Gambit a go. Um, yeah, and we hope that this episode um, inspires some of our listeners to what, like branch out and watch different things as well. Okay, so thanks so much, everyone, for joining me tonight. Um, that's it, right? Say goodnight, sure. everybody. Good night. See you. Oh. Yep, and we will hopefully be back soon with something else. But um, thanks, everyone, and we'll see you guys later. Bye.